party people and welcome to another edition of talking during movies the podcast where we take key moments and quotes from a film to drive a conversation and joining me today is someone that has accomplished more in their young life than i have accomplished in my almost 50 years on this planet folks my new friend she doesn't know it yet but we are new friends the author the athlete the person extraordinaire everyone put your hands together in your car well, hand. Don't reach your hand off the wheel. And welcome, my new friend, MK Lever. MK, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, another day in paradise. <laughs> Before we get down the rabbit hole of conversation and fun, uh, please, how can people get in touch with you, the best socials, all that jazz? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handle is Lever Fever. It's just my last name, followed by the word fever. Um, so yeah, all my info's there, book purchase, we're going to talk about the book, I don't want to spoil anything, so. <laughs> we are, we're going to talk about the book, and now, you know, you sent me a beautiful list of movies, we picked The Princess Bride, what is it about The Princess Bride that rings true and home to you? I think it's the nostalgia of it, it's one okay. of those, like, perfect movies that is just so quotable, like, I drop Princess Bride quotes everywhere, all the time, and people just get it, it's like another language, you know? Um, and so I just, I love the nostalgia of it. I love the storytelling aspect of it. And it's just one of those really great comfort movies. Um, my book is a little bit darker, so it's kind of nice to talk about my dark book in the context of a lighter movie, too. I love it. I love it. All right, well, we're going to hit play here, folks. Uh, for all of you playing at home, this is, we're doing this right off IMBD TV because, hey, it's free and fun. And why not give them a little love? And while we're here, real quick, if you hear that, it's a cold one. And this conversation starter by Ibo will be kicked off with the kids from Power and Light. Mm-hmm. All right. So, first things first, writing a book. Mm-hmm. Why? Why did you decide that that this was your acceptable form of torture? That's a, that's a great way to put it. First of all, um, and that's a really great question too. Um, because just a little bit of background information on me and why I started to write the book. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Texas, and I study NCAA rhetoric and policy, um, as well as other intersections of sport and society. So I look a lot at ideology and power and politics within the realm of sports. And one of the biggest areas of my study is NCAA policy. So I look at NCAA rules, how they affect athletes, and when I would start describing my research to people, I had this tendency to just like jump headfirst into a policy book, and people wouldn't get excited about that because policy is kind of boring. Like I think it's interesting, 
but I really want to talk about it with people because the way that policy affects college athletes is very important to me. And so after a while, I was like, okay, I need to find a way to spice up my research while still remaining true to what it really is about. And so I would start to describe the NCAA as a dystopia to people because I saw all kinds of different um, like literary themes from dystopian books that were also present in the college sports industry. So things like surveillance and censorship and control. Um, and these were all direct, direct effects of just faulty policy in the college sports industry. And so once I started to use that metaphor, people would be like, oh, that's interesting. And I, it sparked some really great conversations. And I was saying it so often that I was like, okay, someone needs to write this book. And then nobody did. And I was like, well, I should probably write it. Because it was just such a good vehicle for me to talk about my research. And so I started writing it around the same time I started my PhD program. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything I ever intended to publish. I just had these characters and, and this world in my head. And I was like, I'm not going to sleep if I don't get this on paper and out of my head. And so it was just kind of a brain dump on a Word document for a long time. And then um, the spring of, I think it was 2019, it was before COVID, um, I had about 90 pages. And I was like, this is a manuscript, and I should do something with it. And that's essentially how it happened. Nice. Um, how far along did you get in before you're like, oh, I bet off a big chunk of flesh here? <laughs> it was probably around the second round of test reading because I thought, you know, writing a book, I was like, this is a great activity for an introvert because I'm just going to like sit down on my computer and crank it out and get it done. But the thing is, for me, the way that book writing went is you have an initial rough draft and then you send it off to a developmental editor and then the developmental, the developmental editor gets back with you and then you send it off to a main reader who is going to pick it apart, tell you everything that's wrong with it, and then you're going to redraft it and then you're going to send it off to beta readers who are going to do the same thing that your first reader did. And then once the beta readers say that it's okay, you send it off to copy editing. And then when copy editing's done, there's another round of beta reading. And then when that round is done, you go to your final proof. And so it was really a team effort. And it was something I thought, like, I very naively thought, oh yeah, once I got my first draft done, I can knock this out in another six months. And like three years later, I was still working on it. So I think it was after that first round of, of beta reading where I was like, yeah, this is harder than I thought it was. And there were a lot of times where I was like, this is such a big project, like, I don't think I can do it. Um, but I, I'm glad that, you know, I pushed through and got it done because um, holding that book in your hand is, is such a, a cool, indescribable feeling. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's, it, and, you know, the, uh, the, the cover is, it, it, it invokes, it, it really, it invokes a response of, I got to check this out, I got to dive in there. But before we dive in the book, I got to ask you a question. In your humble opinion, what's worse? Is it the Olympics or is it the NCAA? <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a great question. Um, I would, I'm, and I'm biased, but I would honestly, I would lean NCAA. Um, and, and I'm honestly like, I'm working on an article right now about athlete abuse in college athletics, and I'm learning a lot about different controls that the Olympics have on that versus the NCAA, because the NCAA doesn't have like a lot of overt restrictions on athlete abuse, whereas the the um, IOC, like it defines it in multiple ways. It enforces penalties against it, against it in certain cases. Um, the IOC is not perfect. It's obviously messed up, you know, with the USA Gymnastics and Larry Nassar scandal and everything else. And secret um, payments to where, let's do the Winter Olympics in the hottest places on earth. Right, yeah. <laughs> How do you figure that? I don't know, check my bank account. Well, then there are all kinds of different, you know, global problems with 
the Olympics as well, like how they've historically been used as expressions of nationalism and how athletes have been framed in terms of global power and used politically against their consent. Um, and we don't see that necessarily as much within the NCAA because it's not as global of a thing. Um, with college sports, a lot of the issues are really confined to the United States. Um, and so they're, they're both problematic. Um, I would just lean towards the NCAA because I, I, I tend to know more about issues in college sports. And once every two years versus every day of right, a kid's yeah. life for four to six years or however long yeah. they're in college. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, when um, I've, I've had some friends who have, have been very successful in college sports, uh, you know, and uh, the, the controversy always comes up about payment but it seems like that card has been pushed aside as we're in a, a new world of defining you know, biology versus gender and where do people compete and how do they compete. And as a woman, I wonder, the years of fighting Title IX, and I will steal a line from Steve Taylor, uh, a musician, you know, are you so open-minded that your brain leaks out? Mm-hmm. Have we become so open-minded in the goal of creating a fair place for people to compete that you've essentially are killing Title IX? I don't think so. Okay. Um, and I know that's not a popular opinion when we're talking about, especially with trans women in women's sports. Um, but, you know, and, and I look at Leah Thomas as, you know, this main example. She's the swimmer from Penn State who won a national title recently. Um, and a lot of people are upset, you know, because they see this this trans woman who is competing in women's sports, and they think it's unfair. Well, uh, and, uh, let me jump in real quick. Yeah, yeah, interrupt, sure but, thing, sure thing. Um, I think one of the problems is is when competing as a male was ranked like 463. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when competing as a female, number one. Right. And so for competitive people, on all spectrums, it seems like you took the easy way out. Not saying that that person did, I'm just right, saying yeah. when you look at the numbers, when you go, you couldn't compete over here, and then you jump over here and now you can, is there, or should there be a bifurcation of emotional and physical support of someone changing versus pursuing what they're doing because biologically, just you're just bigger, stronger, faster, you're just built differently. Yeah, I'm going to go back to what you were saying about her being, I think it was Mm 460-something. And what a lot of of the media is getting wrong about that number is that Thomas was was undergoing hormone therapy replacement during that time. So, you know, before her transition, she was one of the top athletes in the Ivy League on the men's side. And then the NCAA requires athletes to undergo a year of uh, testosterone suppression before they can compete on women's teams, uh, trans athletes, so you need to tell me the media has not given me the true full story? I know, it's almost like they're, they're framing things, like they have an agenda or something. <laughs> it's it's mind-numbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's frustrating. It, it's got to be frustrating for you because you want to make a compelling argument. you got a knucklehead sitting across you going, I, just, <laughs> I read this, not even the headline, like I read the article. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even pick up on the headline. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to read this article. Yeah. And, and so one thing that I do think the media is doing irresponsibly in, in the Leah Thomas case is, you know, first of all, they're using um, pre-transition photos when they're talking about her. So they're showing her in the middle of hormone replacement therapy, doesn't look as feminine. That's a very common tactic the media uses mm-hmm. against trans individuals, especially uh, male to female folks. Um, and then they're also, you know, like I mentioned, they're not 
giving the full context, you know, because Leah Thomas going from second in the Ivy League all the way down to like 450th in the nation or whatever. I mean, that's a huge decrease in performance. And if you look at her times online too, you can see this very, very steady decline in her performances, which I think actually offers a pretty compelling argument that HRT works in athletes the way that it's intended to. Um, And it's also very complicated too, you know, because trans individuals, whether they're athletes or not, they face very disproportionate levels of discrimination and violence, which has a huge effect, negative effect on mental health, and that also impacts athletic performance. Um, and on the other side, you know, when trans individuals go through HRT and they start to feel more comfortable and more confident, that can also increase their uh, mental health as well. And so those, those things also have an impact on athletic performance. And so the media isn't really talking about the mental health impact that HRT may or may not be having on Leah Thomas and how that could impact athletic performance. They're not talking about the um, effects of discrimination and, and harassment and all of that on mental health and athletic performance. And athletic performance is so much more complicated than testosterone levels or muscularity, but it's very easy to look at a picture or a headline and make a blanket statement. And that's what people want to do. You know, We're very inclined, I think, for easy answers. Um, but the easy answer isn't always the right one. And, and I mean, honestly, we're so, this is a fairly, I want to say it's a fairly recent issue, but we have had, you know, trans athletes competing in women's sports for decades. Like we've had Renee Richards, um, Fallon Fox was another one in women's MMA. Um, Juniper Eastwood was a college runner and none of them have been domineering female athletes. So trans status alone, I tend to think doesn't necessarily mean that a female, or I'm sorry, a male to female athlete is going to be successful. Do you think there are some sports where, I mean, like, one, uh, let me say this first. I think a couple assholes ruin the whole bunch. Like, there's a, right. there's a, I forget the person's name, and so, uh, but older gentleman who was transitioning to a woman, mm-hmm. playing college athletics, female basketball, was like 6'11, 270, dominating. Mm-hmm. And people were like, hey, uh, you know, it was a lower level, like, you know, JUCO school, but mm-hmm. people were like, hey, well, you know, hold on, you're playing against 18-year-old girls. That's not comparable in some capacity. Like, I mean, I've played against, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50. When my knees were good a couple of years ago, I played a lot of basketball. I can beat up on an 18-year-old boy because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm bigger and stronger. He is faster yeah. and he can jump high. No question about it. You can put two sheets of paper under my feet when I do a jump shot. Mm-hmm. But I'm stronger and I'm smarter. And I wonder where that, where, where, are there sports where you're like, no, sorry, transgender, like MMA concerns me, right? Yeah. Because yeah. of strength, tendons, bones. I mean, mm-hmm. at some point after 25 or whatever, it's your bones. Right, yeah. And mine, like if I transition now and I go fight, I've got bigger thicker bones, bigger, thicker tendons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are there some sports where you're like, mm, we got to give this a pause or we need to work some things out before we start jumping into the deep end of the pool here? I do think collision sports make a compelling argument for that. Um, there are rugby leagues that have actually, you know, said we don't allow trans athletes for that reason. Um, just because, you know, you talk about the physical build of people who are assigned male at birth is obviously usually, you know, stronger, denser bones, all of that. Um, And so I do think with collision sports, it makes more sense. Um, Something that's interesting, though, to me is, you know, just looking at 
athletes the way that I do and looking at biological diversity within sports, you know, because you mentioned um, this basketball player who was 6'11 on the women's side. Like, that's obviously, that's very tall for anybody, male or female. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are women in the WNBA, like Brittany Griner. She's, I believe she's 6'7", six, 6'9". Six, like, she's very, very tall. And the average height of a WNBA player is around, you know, six feet tall. Um, and there are, you know, differences in muscles, tendons, and bones, et cetera. Um, but and, but, but, and I will say real quick, I've played against WNBA players. Uh-huh, yeah. Don't, folks, don't put a pause or any shine on. When did you play? I want to hear that story. Oh, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> so uh, when I was in Newport Beach, I was very, very fortunate. Uh, I met a gentleman named Alex Holmes. Mm-hmm. He was the blocking tight end and catching tight end for USC when they won all the championships. Mm-hmm. He had a buddy of mine. He was playing with guys like Cherokee Parks and, and uh, let me see, Tony Gonzalez. And, and there's just these pro athletes that would come into this little gym and play. And I got to run with them. And I'm not at that level, and any I'm not trying to say I'm at any level of that. But they knew I wouldn't hurt them, because mm-hmm. they knew I didn't want to prove anything. I just like to run, I like the exercise. And I'm going 100%, and they're going 30%, and they're kicking my ass, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. But at, at some point, this, this young lady, uh, she played for Detroit's team, and she was their shooting guard. First of all, I've never seen one come off a screen cleaner. Mm-hmm. I've never seen one be trickier in violence. And I've never seen one given a moment's openness to just hit nothing but the bottom of the net. Mm-hmm. I mean, when she'd come out, be like, "I don't, I don't know, if, you know, do I have to guard her?" I'm like, first of all, you're a best defender; you have to guard her because she's going to come down and just torch people, and she would torch people. It's and and, and so when I make the commentary about that gentleman, it's it's, it's not that the, the women don't have the skills or the abilities. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes, it's like, listen, that young lady goes against Alex Holmes, who is 6'2", 280 pounds, and runs a 4840. Mm-hmm. It's a different game. Mm-hmm. It just is. They can be the same height. Sorry, it's just, it's a different game. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, you know, that's why I bring that up, because it's like, oh, yeah. you know, Brittany is, uh, you know, and I've, mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've met Cheryl Swoops in person, and, mm-hmm. you know, an amazing human being. That's awesome. You know, but all, I mean, you're looking, like, that's also a physical specimen. You know? Yeah. You know, um, Reggie Miller's sister. You know, you're looking at another specimen of a human being. At the same time, put her against Shaq, and it's not, it's not right. fair. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and so I guess, I, I guess the big question comes down to it. Like, how do we begin to define fairness again? Because I don't know. I, I think that's a great question because I don't think fairness exists in sports, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, if we wanted to ensure, and I'm not saying that we should throw caution to the wind and just say, like, everybody plays against everybody and there are no rules, but I mean, if we wanted true fairness in sports, we'd have to isolate so many variables, like um, socioeconomic status, access to equipment. Um, We'd probably have to isolate by, like, height and weight and all kinds of different standards to make sure that everything was perfectly fair. And I'm very type A. I could probably put all that on a spreadsheet, but, like, I wouldn't wouldn't want for sports to be like that, you know? And I don't think sports fans actually want that level of fairness to where everybody is exactly the same, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying that that, that that's exactly what what you're saying that you want, but... um, I just, I think the best that we can do in sports is mitigate inequity, if that makes sense. Sure, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, when, when you see that, and, and as someone who's gone through the system, should this be the pressing question? Should the inequity and in transgender be the pressing question? Or 
are there more important problems to solve that when those are solved, this works out? Yeah, I, I think there are more important problems for a couple reasons. Um, you know, first of all, trans individuals inside and outside of sports are a massive minority. Like, it's it's maybe 2% of the population. There are, I believe, I want to say 50 out trans athletes in the NCAA right now. So when you look at, you know, 400-something thousand college athletes, that's a very small number. Um, and another thing, too, is that a lot of people are talking in hypotheticals like, oh, these trans athletes are going to come in and they're just, they're gonna kill women's sports and they're gonna dominate women's sports. And they're not looking at the trans athletes besides, you know, Leah Thomas who aren't winning. And so I really, I really think that people are blowing it out of proportion, for one thing, for political gain. We're seeing a lot of, um, you know, laws and bills that are circulating right now that are targeting trans youth in, in very problematic ways. So I see it used for political gain. Um, I see it used, you know, as, as talking points to the media like we were talking about. And I see a lot of people who, you know, I had no idea they were women's sports fans, but all of a sudden they have a lot to say about women's swimming. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, if you really want to help bridge that gender inequity that you see in college sports that you're apparently, you know, so heated about all these people I see online, then maybe, you know, go to games and buy merch and, you know, follow female athletes and coaches on social media and, and you know, do something to help the problem that people are all of a sudden so heated about, you know? So I, I think that people are blowing it way out of proportion and talking more in hypotheticals than in actuality. Yeah, I will say my favorite question when someone brings this up to me yeah. is just name your 10 favorite current playing female right. athletes <laughs> and then we can have the conversation. Yes, I, I've learned to do that too. I'm like, when was what was the last women's sporting event you watched? Because if you can't name one in the last couple of months, then we, we can't have this conversation. Yeah. Or uh, name the last female athlete you played against in anything. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Let's have some fun. Well, okay, so you're an armchair. All right. Well, armchair, did you watch anything? No. Okay, well, uh, we're, we're getting farther yeah. and farther <laughs> away from you knowing shit about anything. Right, yeah. And that and that also gets frustrating, right? Because I think this also gets blown out of proportion, uh, you know, with the internet. Yes, because everyone has a platform now. Everyone has a platform. It's this is the most amazing thing. And as a, as a person, you know, still in school and and, and working, I, I I wonder how what, what you think about this. But it's like I find this fascinating. We have more access to more information, good, bad, and indifferent than we've ever had before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Our education is also dog shit. Yes. And so, <laughs> it's so, bad. so you don't have the opportunity, or you don't have the clarity, mm -hmm. or you don't have the skills or the resources. To one, have a credible conversation. Mm -hmm. To do, have a, have a, have a, have a, have an argument or a disagreement where you can walk out of the room and then shake hands and talk about dogs and kids. Yeah, yeah. And you don't know how to decipher what's real and what's fake. I mean, mm -hmm. it, and the fact that there are people out there, you know, you know the flat Earth is real. Birds <laughs> are fake. And you, you know about this, right? Uh, the, the All birds, birds are, are robots. Drones they're they're government drones. They're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you not seen the crackles lined up watching your car? Birds. I hate I them know. so much. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock is like, I tried to tell you guys a long time ago, birds are fake and, there, and there's no gravity. Because gravity is just a theory. <laughs> there's a great TikTok, this is kind of off topic, but there's a great TikTok where you talk about people having a platform and there's this guy on a podcast or whatever and he's talking about, oh, it's so much harder men to get in shape because we have to resist gravity like women don't have to resist gravity when we lift weights so i'm gonna use yes, that like, i'm gonna make sense that, that yep i'm using it <laughs> i'm gonna be in the gym tomorrow morning i would lift heavier but. obviously gravity 
doesn't affect you like it affects me. Which, <laughs> sir, I don't know if you've seen how your argument doesn't work, but I'm happy to show you because it's, it's off. It's a little off. Do you, you know, uh, what are, going back, 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 back. Mm -hmm. When did you know you were good at sports? I, I honestly, I grew up playing sports and I was a pretty mediocre athlete um, until about my junior year of high school. Because what happened, I, I wanted to- That seems to, like a late start. It was late, yeah, because <laughs> you see, and, and this is, this is a problem that I'm seeing more and more with youth sports is we're seeing kids specialize very early on. They'll pick one sport to play at age five and they'll play it until they can't play it anymore. Um, and more often than not, you see, you know, 14 year olds getting Tommy John surgery because of overuse as a pitcher or, um, you know, or they just have repetitive stress injuries and then they don't make it to college. But I'm a huge proponent of kids playing multiple sports growing up. It keeps things fun. Um, it doesn't contribute to repetitive stress injuries the same way that playing one sport does. And I was just, I was always a multi-sport athlete. Like I played soccer, basketball, I'm five foot two, so I wasn't good at basketball. Um, <laughs> softball. Spud Webb would argue. <laughs> I was not, I was such a bad ball handler. That was my problem. <laughs> like the one thing that short people can do in basketball, I was like, nope. <laughs> Put me in the post, turn around, jump shot, on point. I'll make me bring the ball up. But, but the main sport that I really wanted to play in college was softball. Um, and so around my sophomore year, I started to just focus on softball and I started to focus on track, not as a primary sport, but as conditioning. Um, and so I started running track my freshman year just to you know condition myself for softball so I could have more endurance on the field. Um, but then my sophomore year, I was playing right field in practice I was running headlong for a pop-up fly ball, and I jumped right into the second baseman's knee. And she fell on my back, I sprained my back, I was out for several weeks and I lost a starting job. And I was really, I was so crushed by that because I thought, you know, if I hadn't gotten injured, I, I was doing so well and I would have kept the starting job and, and it would have been so much fun, but now I'm just riding the bench and it sucked. Um, and I thought, you know, if I were in better shape, then maybe, you know, I would have recovered from this injury faster. And so that summer, I started not half-assing track and really taking it seriously. Um, and so that summer, my times just dropped incredibly. Um, like, I, I dropped about two minutes off my 5K time that summer, and my times kept falling. And around winter of my junior year, I was like, I've got to make a commitment to softball or track because it's got to be a one or the other thing if I want to do this in college, and I did. And I picked track because it was coaches were starting to contact me and, and that wasn't happening with softball. And so I was like, this is just the right decision for me. And it's something that I, you know, I haven't loved up until now that I'm actually a decent runner. And so I decided to really make a hard commit to softball, my, or I'm sorry, to track my junior year. Nice. My uh, dear friend of mine, shout out Heather Rogers. She a uh, softball player. Yeah, your your injury, not not to one up you, Heather. You're one upping. <laughs> she swung the bat. She was going to the Olympic trials mm -hmm. to make the team. Swung oh, wow. the bat, dislocated both her shoulders. Oh. Her arms instantly got longer. Oh yeah, that's not Just, how you want to do that. Though. You don't want to, <laughs> you know. So it was like pop pop, and then a surgery, and then a surgery. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, she was third base, hitting that hotline. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see softball as one of the most dangerous sports. 
Yeah, I, I would. The, the ball's big. It's fast. Everything's closer. Yes. <laughs> the bats are aluminum. Yeah. You know, it's just there's and even like slow pitch, the knuckleheads. I mean, I saw a friend who lost all his teeth. Oh, yeah, did it because he stepped forward. You know, in a little pitch, he's like, there it is, and he's just guiding it in with his face. And I was like, you wanna, you wanna put the, you wanna protect the money maker there, champ. Yeah. And that yeah. thing comes rocketing back. How you know I've. I've tried running in the past. About the mm -hmm. most I was able to do was 10 miles. Not mm -hmm. that I couldn't run farther mentally. Mm -hmm. I was so bored that I just stopped. That's always the hard part, yeah. I don't think people realize how mentally tough runners are. What do you do to get your mind ready to run? I think you just have to make it a habit. You know, it's one of those things, because I had to force myself out of bed to do it for a long time. You Goggins and in then, it, just looking down at your feet, going, I hate you. I yeah, hate yeah, feet. just like, and, and just like, honestly, I, I'm such an in-my-head kind of person. I would just kind of zone out and think about, like, oh, here's a checklist of things I need to do today. And, like, here's a grocery list, and I can't forget to do this later on. And, and like, oh, I have a test next week. I should study. What do I remember off the top of my head? You know, so it's like I was always running through a lot of different thoughts during my run and then plus like it's so nice too when you have a team uh, because that gives you some accountability and it, it gives you a reason to get out of bed and you know wake up when it's 6 a.m. and you'd rather be sleeping on a Saturday or whatever um, and so I know there are like running you know running groups um, if you can find you know an accountability partner who wants to get in shape with you if there's you know a goal that you have like a marathon or a 10k or something you want to run um, that that's always what I tell people like you have to find whatever gets you out of bed every morning and just stick with it so you first a.m. like get up get the run done and then do your day yeah I was always a morning runner and I still I still prefer to work out in the morning just because it sets a good tone for my day um, if I wake up at you know 6 a.m. and just go to the gym there's no you know waffling back and forth all day like mm, should I go to the gym at 3 30 or no um, and so it, it's really a function of habit for me. And it is. It's one of those things. I'm, I'm a morning person, too, only mm -hmm. because it it's, gets done out of the way. You know, I get a little bit of work done, get to 5 a.m., a little bit of work done, about mm -hmm. 6.30, I'm at the gym, which is nice and comfortable. It's not too busy. And then also later in the day, a lot of excuses can come up. Oh, you should yeah. do this. Oh, this person called. I haven't seen them forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's this... There, the excuses build and build and build. Right, right. Versus the uh, the, the fulfillment of the gym. I, I, do you um. When you're at that, 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 what are your moments where you want to quit? Like for for me, it was the first mile was the worst, mm -hmm. and then the eighth mile was the worst. And by the tenth, I was just like, I wasn't even tired. It was so much that I was tired, and I was just like, this is, I'm tired of talking myself into making another step. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where are your, what were your pitfall numbers? Where you're just like, if I break this, I know I can go this much farther. I remember during races was when this really stuck out to me because with the 5K, it's a little over three miles. And so there was always this point around the two mile mark where my coaches, they would tell me, Katie, you gotta go right now. And I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I can't, I can't go. 
I have another mile, like what, you're trying to get me to kick it in now. But like they knew that I didn't have the sprint speed to kick it up mm -hmm. in the last 400. And so it was always that moment where I was like, oh no, like my coaches are right around the corner and they're about to tell me to run faster and I can't run faster. <laughs> that was always the moment where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore and it would be really nice to step off the track. Yeah, that's, that's me all the time. <laughs> and now I have bad knees. I, I, I get the excuse mm -hmm. where I don't have to run. It's a lot more. But then I have to change my diet. It yeah. sucks. Yeah, yeah. A lot less carbs, a lot less sugar. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're not doing a lot of cardio. Mm -hmm. And so you have to because otherwise that stuff just, weightlifting just doesn't do it. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't. That's a big struggle for a lot of college athletes when they, you know, when they graduate and they're not working out three hours a day is figuring out how to, how to calibrate your nutritional needs. How did you do it? Um, I was always like a very healthy eater and so it didn't it didn't it wasn't a difficult transition for me it was just and plus like I stayed active like very active after college for me it was more like it was, it was more of a relief knowing that oh thank god I don't have to eat 3,500 calories a day anymore 3,500 it was yeah there were some sometimes in this like I, I would probably lose about 10 pounds over the course of a semester every year just because when you're what? running yeah when you're running like and that, that sounds great. It's like, oh, I'd love to lose 10 pounds. But it's actually like, it's very frustrating because you end the season weak. Um, I was always tired and very frail at the end of the season. And so I would try to go in heavy. But there were times where I was like, I just have to eat as much as I can physically force myself to. And I was still like under 110 pounds. Like I weighed nothing in college because I was running so much. Wow. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, oh, cool, I can eat like a more realistic level. And then my thyroid was messed up after graduation. So that was like a whole other curveball. So I'm still kind of adjusting that number and figuring that out. When you look at someone like, you know, uh, a Michael Phelps, you, you know, and, and it was a big deal. And they're like, yeah. oh, you know, he eats uh, seven large pizzas and six Subway yeah. sandwiches <laughs> and uh, 52 eggs a day. Do you, when you see something like that as an athlete who's, who's done the 3,500, which is just it's so much. It's a lot, yeah. And he's doing, what, 12,000 or 15,000, some crazy amount mm -hmm. of calories. Does that go, is that a wow moment for you, or is that a concern moment for you of going, hey, at some point, your body's going to change, and is your desire or your or your mental, because at some point it's about like this, there's a whole diet thing new, where there's like, oh, yeah. we'll help you lose weight because mentally you've just done some things. Like, I know for me mentally, I stay away from sugar. Mm -hmm. But I have one piece of candy, I don't stop at one piece of candy. Like I said, I have those stupid little animal crackers that have the, the, the circus cookies oh, that have the frosting yeah. on it with the little buttons. <laughs> I texted my friend the other day, I ordered a bag of them, and I thought, I'm going to have one, and I got them like these little bastards. <laughs> They're so good. They just keep getting in my mouth. Mm -hmm. They keep running right up in here, and the bag was gone. Yeah. I watched the Batman movie, and the bag was <laughs> dusted. Yeah. You know, how do you, where's your, you know, when you hear somebody like that, you're just like, oh, shit, or that, oh, good for you there, champ, keep eating. My first thought is like, oh, that must suck, because everyone, like, they, they Does it remove the that? enjoyment? the food it, it does because it becomes an obligation and it's like oh I've got to hit this number or my coaches are gonna you know tell me I'm too underweight to train and then they're gonna take that away from me because like I've had I was never in that boat I was always borderline where my coaches were like oh well maybe we should you know cut back on your training but like I had teammates who were deemed too thin by my coaches who aren't mm -hmm. nutritionists or dietitians but <laughs> they would they would look at they would look at my teammates and say like oh you're too thin you need to gain weight and they would say that to me too 
and, and they would look at some of the bigger, and by bigger I mean like maybe 120 pounds, like nothing. And they would say, oh, we need to put you on a 1200 calorie diet because you're too big to be a runner. You know, and so there was a lot of this body policing that was going on in college. Um, it really messes with your body image even, you know, long after that's all over. Um, and so honestly, like, when I see these stories of athletes eating like 10,000 calories a day, my first thought is like, I'm so glad that I don't have to, you know, police what I eat like that anymore because it, it really is exhausting. That's it. I one I'm, I'm shocked to hear that as a, as a as a man who has a daughter. That bothers me. Yeah, yeah, it's an it's a problem. At what point does that class action lawsuit happen? I mean, I, you know, yeah. in all the lawsuits that have happened, you're talking about payment. Mm-hmm. People, you know, I mean, like. Uh, the, the students have to get paid, and okay, fine, but we are also in an era of really recognizing mental health. Yes, yes. Really recognizing mental health, and we're not taking that into consideration. That, that, yeah. that, I mean, and maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but I don't believe so. It's formative abuse by, by people in power mm-hmm. who also don't have the schooling or the technology behind them yeah. to allow them to make those decisions to say you are this or you are that from the eyeball. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then I guess I'll two part question here and then all these people, it's a, it's it's the gut, it's the eyeball test, it's the yeah. look. Yeah. We are too scientifically advanced to still have some coach mm-hmm. going, ah, the eyeball test is not gonna work. Mm-hmm. Where are there mental health experts or people at the NCAA level that if an athlete is, you know, feeling that way, they get to go talk to them, or is that just not available? That's honestly one of my biggest pet peeves about the NCAA is they do all kinds of research on, you know, um, eating disorders and mental health and and um, you know discrimination in college sports. But then when you look at their actual enforceable policy manuals. There's nothing that really outlaws that from happening or prevents that from happening. They have all these rules about amateurism and like athletes can't accept under the table payments and like, you know, potential NIL violations and things like that where athletes can get punished for that. But then they don't really have enforceable rules where coaches can get punished for their wrongdoings against athletes. So um, the NCAA is aware that these things are problems, but they don't really do anything about it. Yeah, it's like it's like the smoking companies being aware that it gives right. cancer. They're like, I mean, we're obviously low on the totem pole. Right. Let's, let's make sure Joe Camel looks good. <laughs> Got him in a bow tie. Looks real nice. So I brought this up because I find this very fascinating. I was pulling up some weird and interesting facts about Andre the Giant, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and you know, one, I mean, he's, he was a huge man, obviously a professional wrestler, and then also uh, a guy who tried some acting, had some problems, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it seemed like he was, I forget, it's gigantism or something where he's continually, like Tony Robbins, he's mm-hmm. continually growing, but one of the things that they said is, um, he would, uh, he, let's see, here, here, here's the one, it's, you know, at, at London Hyatt, after filming The Princess Bride, do you know what his bar tab was? Oh, jeez, how much was it? <laughs> it was a paltry very embarrassing $40,000 bar tab he's also you know uh, the Princess Bride co-stars you know um, they also said that he would often show up hungover from drinking so much the night before and when, mm-hmm. by so much he 
drank 48 beers in a drive from A to B. Wow. He had to, he was such a large man. People, just so you know, if you don't know who Andre the Giant is, if you aren't a product of the kid of the 80s or didn't know Princess Bride, he was such a large man that in the hotels, he had to poop in the tub because he couldn't fit on the toilet. His hand, his shoe size was 22. That's not bad. And he would often sit down in a single sitting and have 12 steaks. Mm -hmm. I like that. And here it is. And a world champion beer drinker, he holds the unofficial title for most beers consumed in a single sitting. Would you like to take a guess? It's more than 48. It's going to be more than 48. <laughs> that's true. I mean, at 12, this, this asshole was, he was 6 feet tall and 200 pounds at 12. Wow. Now, you know, that's, that's a big boy. Did he play any sports aside from, I guess, I don't know, do you count wrestling as a sport, like um, pro wrestling? It's more entertainment, right? It's entertainment. It's active entertainment. Yeah. Right? I mean, he had to obviously be in somewhat of shape, but, um, yeah, he, he used bathtubs as toilets, according to <laughs> all his wrestling friends. It's just so bad. So, uh, just as um, to wrap up the beer thing and, and to really talk, wrap up indulgence, it was 156 beers in one sitting. Wow. That's a lot of beers. That's a lot. It's a lot yeah. of calories. Mm -hmm. it's a lot, that's the body's working real hard. That liver's mm -hmm. working real hard. Mm -hmm. Can't imagine how big that bladder is. It's a lot of potty breaks. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of potty breaks. As a, as an athlete traveling on, you know, did you travel, did you get to travel a lot? Yes. Yeah. We traveled a lot. What, um, as a runner, it often seems like, right, you're kind of on your own, mm -hmm. but you're also in a team sport. Mm -hmm. How do you remedy the two of, you know, as you said, kind of hinted to, you're an introvert a bit. Mm -hmm. So how do you remedy being um, available as a teammate, taking care of yourself and preparing for your run and who you are and your personality? So I didn't do that well in college. Um, you know, what I did, and I write about this in my book too, um, I really sacrificed my personal relationships to be a great college athlete. Um, and I didn't hit my goals, you know, at the end of my career, which is such a bummer looking back on it. It's like I sacrificed a lot of memories and you know, like a lot of really good relationships and just fun times with people because I wanted to be an All-American and go to nationals. I had all these goals that I never ended up hitting. So, um, you know, I really spent more time developing myself personally. And, you know, I had, I had coaches who were sort of, they were sort of coercing that mindset too. Like I had coaches telling me, oh, you need to be selfish. Like it's okay if, you know, you're more dedicated and you just need to, you know, sacrifice things to be great. Like that's just what you have to do. Um, and they would do that to me in ways that they wouldn't do it to my teammates. I think it's because they knew that I would listen. Um, you know, and so I took that very seriously. And so I would, you know, I made sure to be in bed by like eight o'clock every single night as a college student. Um, I, I went to like one party my freshman year and that was it. You know, I didn't make those typical college memories that everybody talks about, which may, may or may not be a good thing. I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, it's like, I never made those really fun, kind of irresponsible decisions that college students do. And there's a part of me that really regrets that, you know, because I was so hyper-focused on making sure my diet was perfect and my sleep was perfect and my grades were perfect. So I was too wrapped up in being a perfect college athlete to just let myself be human. How have you changed or what have you done to make those changes so um, you're, you're not wrapped in that way with the new work that you're doing? For a while, I, you know, because I, I, when I graduated, I thought, okay, cool, you know, track is over, this unhealthy 
work-life balance is going to be over since my sport is done. And that was just not a great line of thinking because once track was over, I channeled all of that energy into being a grad student and getting my PhD. Um, and so I've had to learn over the years to really make connections with people. I was also an army brat growing up, and so I just wasn't used to forming these deep relationships with people because I was moving every two years, you know? And then in college, I was so focused on my sport that I, I pushed those relationships aside. And so the best thing that I've done, um, you know, since being out of college sports, it was a lot of trial and error to figure this out, but the best thing that I've done is just forming real connections and real relationships with people. Um, and I think that's just the best remedy for a lot of problems that we as humans just have, like, you know, burnout and stress and, and just general disenchantment with things that are going on. And um, I think the best thing as an introvert saying this <laughs> is to form, even if it's just a few very deep connections, those are very, very important. Anything uh, silly or wild you've done that, you know, your, your college self would look up and be like, that's out of character. You shouldn't uh, do that. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I think the wildest thing that I've probably done is started CrossFit <laughs> since I graduated. That was something, because that that's another part. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, <laughs> and I've been shot at by police in Mexico. <laughs> um, hmm, I've been detained in Thailand because of a tear in my passport where the guy sitting next to me had snakes up his butt. Uh, and the other guy next to me had cocaine up his butt, and I'm like, I just had a tear in my passport. I don't know why I'm next to you two assholes, or I don't know what's going on here. Uh, yeah. No, I'm boring. <laughs> you you got a, a powerful book. You're, you're, you're talking to amazing people. You have a podcast. You've got so much going on. You're not boring. It's you're just you're 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 focused in different areas that are actually functional. I'm not functional. I'm not boring, but I'm also not functional. Like my life doesn't transition to functionality. Mm -hmm. It transitions to you know stories yeah. and entertaining and I still have, I have friends who are just looking at me like hey you know get old. <laughs> it's time for maybe someone else <laughs> to tell the story I'm like eh, da, 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 da. hold I mean, on a second if you're passionate about it though like don't, don't let people tell you how to live your oh, life oh no I don't I mean I, I was I, I was telling a buddy the other day that not a, a new buddy who was like so what do you, you know so many weird jobs mm -hmm. so, yeah so the first can of steel reserve to 11 you're shaking your head. It's it's a malt liquor. It's very. Mm -hmm. It was before there was four loco and all these other crazy ones. This is uh, the first okay. eight percent beer on the market. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I was telling about stories of South Central getting shot at, mm -hmm. you know, and bullet holes in the car, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> late nights and being in. I was I was in the back of a convenience store. And I'm talking to this mm -hmm. guy, and I was bald, red goatee, 330 pounds. Big boy, big old farm boy. Mm -hmm. Do you like boss malt liquor? And I'm gonna just knucklehead. <laughs> and I remember in the back of this store, and this guy goes, I need you to lay down on the floor. I was like, uh, I don't know how your sales go, but sir, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna politely object to laying down on the floor, Miss Dupree. I do like your iced tea, but no thank you. And he goes, No, we're getting robbed. And in case this guy opens gunfire, I don't want you to get shot. Because it's usually from the waist up that they shoot. Mm -hmm. And so now wow. I'm on the floor. <laughs> yeah. I'm laying down. I'm like, I'm on the floor now. Yes, I'm on the floor. Shots went out. I don't care what. I grew up shooting guns. I made mm -hmm. my own bullets to go hunt animals so we could eat in the winter. 
that gun went off, I wet my pants. Yeah, yeah. It's a different thing when, when they're like, that could have been for me. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's been, so I'm from a small town. Like, my, my folks are gun owners. I grew up around guns, too. I'm used to hearing gunshots in the countryside, but it's totally different when you move to a city and you hear gunshots. It's yeah. like, <laughs> very it's uncomfortable all of a sudden. Very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> it is. Is there, uh, you, you say you're from a small town, mm-hmm. and then you're this athlete, you've got this book. What is what? How does the small town engage with you? I mean, even your your stances on on, on transgender and, and where mm-hmm. things sit. And the reason I ask, I, I talked to this wonderful woman, um, Wen Zhang, and she is a uh, first generation. She's from here from China. Mm-hmm. She was with her mom when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. She felt like the moon followed her home, and that was and that was her sign that she was going to do greatness. Mm-hmm. She held her mom's hand. She looked at her mom. She goes, "Mom, I'm going to be the mayor of this little town one day." And her mom <laughs> put her hand over her mouth and she goes, "We do not talk that way." You are gonna make some babies, hopefully now, and you're gonna get the house clean. Mm-hmm. And this, these are these are your two jobs, mm-hmm. right? And, and keep your husband happy. These are these. This is what you do. You're gonna be mayor. You stop your nonsense. You know, and I'm from a small town, and you know I wanted to go do fun things, and I did, and I missed out on crazy opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I drive back up to Montana. I flew back up a couple months with my daughter. You know, my my kids look at me. She's eight. Hey, daddy, how come you know? Everyone knows everybody else here, yeah. and they've all <laughs> heard of you. Mm-hmm. Like everyone that comes up, Daddy, they say they've heard of you. I go well, Dad left. I bounced. I was in SoCal. I was in mm-hmm. Seattle at seventeen. At eighteen, I was in SoCal, mm-hmm. and I never came back because I never had to. Because mm-hmm. I didn't want to. Because I didn't want to be in a town of a thousand people, or a town of five thousand people, or a town of yeah. twenty thousand. I wanted to do something different, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be different mm-hmm. how does your small town take your success and your takes on life and everything else I'm very fortunate to be from a town where folks disagree on things without making them into character attacks and and you know like excommunicating you and all of this stuff because um, I'm very I'm very outspoken about my beliefs I'm very outspoken about my research I, I really identify as a public scholar where I take my research and publish it to outlets as much as possible instead of academic journals where, you know, they're behind these big paywalls and, you know, it's very dry reading in academic journals. Um, And so people, they know where I stand. I've always been very unapologetic about my views. And I think for some people, it it can either be very off-putting or very refreshing, (laughs) depending on, you know, how much you agree with someone like me or disagree with someone like me. Um, something that is really weird is that I'll go home and people remember me from high school and they'll be like, oh, Katie, you know, my daughter is in basketball right now and I think she's got some college potential. What's your advice? And they'll ask me for like recruiting advice and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I have a lot of love for where I came from. I think it, it also keeps me very grounded and very humble because I'm like you. I didn't want to stay in my hometown for you know a really long time I love going home to visit but I wanted when UT sent me my acceptance letter I was like I have to go like I can't turn this down I didn't know anybody in Austin you know but I was like I can't stay still I have to you know go to the next thing and keep on achieving and really use up every ounce of energy I have in my life like that's really how I view my work is that I was put on this planet to do something and I want to do as good of a job as I can you know, and so I think that getting uncomfortable and moving and making big decisions and taking risks is a part of that. 
No, and I'm surprised UT just hasn't put a video out with you going, you can come to the University of Texas. You don't have to be a drug addict or a drunk. <laughs> you don't have to party every day. I would like you to meet MK. She doesn't even know where East 6th is. It's quite impressive. <laughs> MK, tell us about your time in your dorm room at UT for the last four years. Where that's the only place you were. Put a treadmill in there. That's where she competed, folks. Oh, no. So, so college actually went to Western Kentucky University, which is like... Western Kentucky? Yeah, like our... It was in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I know where well. Yep, I'm yep. very familiar with Kentucky. <laughs> and like the highlight of the town was a bowling alley when I was there. So that might be why I wasn't super wild as a, as a college student. Well, I mean, bowling alleys can be a lot of fun. When I was a kid in Montana, they, they couldn't afford to eat the gym. Yeah. In the winter, right? Mm-hmm. Or they could for the, you know, obviously with the boys' sports, we can we eat the gym. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ladies' sports, those are in the warm months. It's too expensive. <laughs> obviously. But uh, we would, you know, during the day, you couldn't do the gym thing. So they would take us bowling. Mm-hmm. So we'd go to the bowling alley. Well, Montana, the bowling alley is also the bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the dude would just be hung over, smoking a cigarette out front, unlock it. You know, the gym teacher's coming in in his weird pants and, you know, just the weirdest gym teacher, flipping on the lights. How do you keep score? All right, you guys got to keep score. And then he's like checking our math for scoring, but then he's back outside smoking with the owner. And so we were just behind the bar drinking, just coming back to school, just schnockered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We were like, well, we got we to gotta figure this out. I'm like, I don't know, how about some adult supervision? <laughs> Yeah, 15 year olds in a bar. Yeah. You've left them alone with shitty bowling shoes and bowling balls, which, uh, let's be honest, if there's one thing that should have shut down with COVID, the first thing is bowling, right? Mm-hmm. Use shoes, three dark holes that have never been cleaned, you put your fingers in, and right. then we only serve you finger food and yeah. white Russians. <laughs> Not this very. Conspiracy theorists, the fact that you didn't go, I think COVID started the bowling alley, it yeah. really, really <laughs> bothersome to me because you really went to a lot of other places it could have started mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. you know, and we never went to bowling alleys, and yeah. they're disgusting. <laughs> they're horrible. So, Western Kentucky, mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, it's a head scratcher only because, well, one, it's, it's Kentucky, mm-hmm. and you're in that, you're in that realm of, do we pray with the rattlesnake? <laughs> I mean, dating a second cousin, obviously okay. I'm offending so many people. No, no I'm laughing because that is such a prominent stereotype. <laughs> and sometimes not far off. Documentaries have not helped Western Kentucky or no. or the Virginias. The Wild Whites of West Virginia. Have you seen that? I have. Are you th- are you talking about Appalachia? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got that one family that the whole documentary on. Mm-hmm. The police are like, I mean, yes, they sell opioids. We leave them alone <laughs> because you know they're this family and they're mm-hmm. crazy. And then you've got the the one they start interviewing them all, and you hear this voice. I remember I was because they don't really pay attention, and they just kind of have stuff on in the background all the time. My poor ex wife, she'd be like, the TV's always on. I'm like, it has to be on. It's just it's <laughs> ADHD distraction, and you just hear this. Yeah, my name's Gloria. I'm the pretty one. I'm the stripper. And you're like, hold on, pause. Pause the movie. (laughs) Alexa, pause. I got to see Gloria in her prime. She's the pretty one. Where am I going? It was just, it's wild. It's, Mm -hmm. but I mean, and it's wild and it's also fun. Like, I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan of. Small town bars, small town drinking, small town hanging out. 
Right. Kid and I road trip. We don't take major freeways. It's only two lane highways. She's oh, nice. a water tower. She's like, that's a potty break. I'm like, mm-hmm. idiot. You know, you want to stop at a <laughs> stop at a store? We're gonna stop at a store. Get some water. We get a little thing. So, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm making fun through a movie, but I also love small towns. Mm-hmm. What brought what? Was that the only offer you had? And you're like, I'm taking it? Or were you just, you're like, this is just where I want to go because of education X, Y, and Z? It was, it was where I wanted to go for a lot of different reasons. So um, my mom and my grandpa both played sports at, at WKU. Um, and my mom subtly influenced me to go to WKU pretty much my whole life. Like I was going to football games when I was a, a child. Like I had a little cheerleader outfit and everything. Um, and so now she's doing the same thing to my little cousin, who is now 10, I believe. So she's like, Look how successful MK her. is. She's got a book, PhD she's, program, UT. So my I'm just mom, saying. Whatever you want to do. Like, she's trying. So my mom has three sisters, and she's competing with two of them to be the favorite aunt to my little cousin. So, like, she straight up bribes her. Like, she always gets her stuff, like, takes her to WKU football games. She has a horse that she'll, like, spray paint and put little like fairy wings on it for her when she comes over so she's like straight up bribing um my cousin but <laughs> silly mit letters <laughs> but does mit have a horse with butterfly with no. <laughs> yeah so she's she's winning the favorite aunt competition is very happy um but that was one of the reasons I, I i grew up you know going to these football games my grandpa has he was on the 1954 Refrigerator Bowl Championship football team. That's back before, you know, all these bowl games were branded mm-hmm. with actual companies. It was just like the Refrigerator Bowl. <laughs> um, what are we giving away, Bob? How about a refrigerator? Refrigerator, yeah. Good night with the Refrigerator Bowl! <laughs> huh? Refrigerator Bowl! Got it. That's something that's been really wild to me, you know, as someone who's been a college athlete and studying college sports, is looking at how much it's evolved since my grandpa and my mom were in college because, you know, going through the recruiting process, we thought, oh, we know so much because, like, both my parents were college athletes. My grandpa was so, a college By the athlete. way, check mark for this. Sorry to interrupt, but no, let's, just, let's jump in here. Kudos to mom for being a college athlete instead of going yeah. there for, especially Western Kentucky, no offense, but that area and even the Northwest and, you know, when you mix in religion into certain areas of the country, mm-hmm. most women went to school for the MRS degree. Mm-hmm. My mom was actually a colonel in the army. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Mom's going to kick my ass. My son. <laughs> Calm down about the day. I take everything back about Western Kentucky University. I think it's an amazing place. I think well, MIT needs to mind its P's and Q's. Well, and I look back, too, and it's like my mom was the first generation that benefited from Title IX. You know, so it's yeah. just like looking at, at sports history and how much has changed in a small amount of time and still how much, you know, farther we have to go. But it, it's just really interesting. So even more depth at. to your insight and answer to the transgender piece. Yeah, Because you watched, I mean, you were raised by someone that literally fought and went through stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it's something, you know, and I, I, I have the privilege of sort of watching it from the outside and, and researching it from the outside, um, you know, not as a trans person who's going through it, but it is very interesting just to watch the conversation unfold and to see where it's going to be in, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that's one of my favorite things as a, as a, as a researcher is just looking at these trends and how things change and how we can improve things in the future and use that knowledge for good. I am a, a big, it's so funny, my friend makes so much fun of me. I had gotten COVID, so I didn't get the oh, vaccine no. because I was like, I got it. I didn't even know I had gotten it. Like, uh-huh. I went to get my physical and they're like, do you know you had COVID? And I was like, that is amazing. Oh, no. <laughs> Take my blood. 
you know, whatever you guys need, <laughs> just take it. But I'm also the person who is constantly trying to optimize or do something different with my health mm -hmm. to try to stay just a hair ahead. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that is, mentally, you know, you know, alpha brain. Can you pop that alpha brain? What can you do? Peptides. Mm -hmm. As a college athlete from where you were and where things are now, where is that balance of where legal and illegal goes, not by the courts, mm -hmm. but by the NCAA? for taking care of yourself and making sure that you could, because you're put through a much harder regimen than I am. I'm just mm -hmm. old. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're doing stuff every day and to the point of kids, you know, you know, five-year-old, I want to run track. You're like, great, Tommy. You're going to run a marathon a week. <laughs> and when you're 30, you're going to be dead, but yeah. you're going to be the new Prefontaine. Enjoy life. Mm -hmm. Where does natural healing come in? Where does assisted healing come in? And where could the NCAA be better? So what's interesting to me is that, you know, a lot of people look at college athletes and they think like, oh, that's such a healthy person. Like that person is like the pinnacle of good health. And I was probably at, I was at my fittest in college in a lot of ways, but I was also very unhealthy in college. Like I was constantly injured. I had, you know, a bunch of mental health issues that were just completely, um, you know, off of my radar. Um, I, I didn't know how to take care of myself because I was focused on making sure that I was ready for my next race and not necessarily that I was at my absolute healthiest and that I was really doing well physically and mentally. It was all about making sure that I could stay healthy enough to compete at the highest level and that was it. Um, and so I didn't know my limits. Like I was constantly pushing myself too hard and I didn't know it. I just couldn't understand, you know, like, why am I tired all the time? Like, why am I injured all the time? And looking back on it now, it's like, I was tired and injured all the time because I was pushing myself way too hard. And I was in this constant state of, of stress and of pain. And athletes are so good at normalizing that too. Like we're so good at just shutting down and toughing things out because that's what we have to do for athletic performance. So when we talk about, you know, athletes taking care of themselves, it's very difficult to teach athletes how to do that when we're constantly being encouraged by coaches and just by athletic culture in general to not necessarily do its best for us, but to do its best for our athletic performance and our teams, if that makes sense. It does, and it doesn't seem like a good return. No, no offense, yeah. it doesn't seem like a fair return, I should say. Yeah. It, it just doesn't. You are, you're asked to do a lot, and you know, and somebody like, they're giving a free education, now they can take on the world. But, yeah. but can you, <laughs> I mean, if you're mentally broken, Mm -hmm. If you're physically broken, and then if you're trying to still live up to a, a, a standard that, a, that an influential person put in your brain, mm -hmm. are you better off? Well, and the thing is, too, a lot of people think that, oh, athletic scholarships are all four-year full rides. Very few of them actually are. Most athletic scholarships are, they're called renewable scholarships, so they expire at the end of an academic year, and then they're renewed if the coach has resources and wants to keep the athlete for the next year. Um, a lot of them are partial, so they're only paying for like books or tuition, tuition or room and board. Um, and so the whole idea of, oh, all college athletes have a full ride, which is something I hear constantly from people, um, is actually, it's kind of a misleading trope. And that's always what I tell um, folks too when they're asking me for recruiting advice for their um, for their athletic kids, it's like, well, you know, if they do make it to D2 or D1 where scholarships are offered, you know, make sure they're racking up as much academic scholarships as possible to offset what they might not get as an athlete. I always tell kids that, and I went, you know, I was not a good student. 
somehow I got lucky, got into college, and was did very well in college. Was very lucky to do well in college. Uh, and people are always asking, like, hey, you know, kids going to school, what do you recommend? And my my life's simple. Mm-hmm. Alumni program. Mm-hmm. You want to be successful, go to a school with a good alumni program. Mm-hmm. I don't care about anything else. There's a reason that USC has the money it has in the coffers. There's a reason UT has the money in the coffers. There's a reason why if you're a UT grad and you apply for a job here, you're pushed to the top. Yeah. Because more than likely, the CEO or the venture capitalist that funded it or something else, it was from UT or sits on a board or some, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and where, you know, in your advice for athletics and then academics, you know, where from your balance, Western Kentucky, to, and then going to UT, Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of, you can see, the, obviously, that I would say, outside of your mom, you can see the uh, the difference in, in weight in that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is, what else, but I, what do I go, what I'm getting to is what else comes with the weight of that name when you're an athlete? You mean the weight of the, like, as a college athlete? Yeah, I mean, like. UT, you're, you're wearing those horns. I mean, am, am I, and, and what, that burnt orange is, is the most licensed, yeah. you know, color and, and I symbol? I just learned that it was trademarked. Because my, yeah. my boyfriend coached archery when he was in college here. Yeah. And he told, he's like, yeah, it's trademarked, like burnt orange. And I was like, I was like, are you messing with me? And he's like, no, it's legit. Like, we had to get permission to use it. Yeah, you do. And it's yeah. the most licensed uh, color and, uh, and symbol of, mm-hmm. of all athletics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's number one. Is there a greater weight when you go into a program like that than, you know, uh, a Division two or a smaller Division one? I, I mean, University of Montana. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the athlete. Because I always tell, you know, high schoolers this. It's like, I don't care if you go, like, JUCO, D3, D2, D1. If you make it to college sports, you are a stud. Like, you're a great athlete. Because people tend to say, and I, and I did this, too. Um, and I did this, too, with my academics. Because I was like, oh... WKU like we're not an R1 and all of a sudden I'm going to UT and like all these people have tons of academics in their family and like no one in my family has a doctorate and and so I was just like I felt very inferior because I was coming from a non R1 school Um, and and R1 is just like a very research focused school Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't follow academics Um, but it it was the same way as as like a mid-major athlete I was like I would go to these big races against you know Big Ten Pac-12 athletes and I'd be like I'm not a power five athlete, like, what am I doing here? And I would get in my head, you know, but regardless of where you end up, I think in, in, in terms of college and education um, and athletics, it's like, if you make it to college and if you, you know, if you graduate college, you're a stud. Like, I don't care what level you are. I don't care if it's like community college or the best program in the country. If you get a degree, you're a stud. If you don't get a degree and like you make a good life for yourself, you're also a stud. You know, it's, uh, it's like, I think that we tend as as humans just to put a lot of weight on like titles and brands and things like that but success I think looks very different for different people and so it's a matter of what you know doing what you're passionate about and doing things that are going to make a difference and things that get you out of bed every morning do you you know as when you when you wrote your book and you're going through this did you fear any repercussions from the NCAA um not really just because like lots of people have been criticizing the NCAA uh for for years now and the NCAA's biggest move is to deflect you know 
I mean, they will press charges sometimes. Like, we just had um, a, a court case go all the way up to the Supreme Court, NCAA versus Austin. The NCAA lost. They don't have a great track record legally anyway. Um, and so I was like, you know, like, I don't know if the NCAA, like, maybe issues a cease and desist letter or, or whatever. It's like, they don't really have anything on me. Like, I'm not doing anything that other critics haven't, you know, already done in a nonfiction sense. I'm just taking what I know and translating it essentially into something that's more in maybe more engaging or more exciting for folks or something that they can really, you know, sink their teeth into and sit with for a while. Um, and so I didn't really, you know, I never thought that the NCAA would ever come after someone like me. Um, they haven't, you know, they haven't said anything to me. And I'm honestly, there's nothing in that book that I can't back up with research. So if they ever do come after me, then, you know, I say bring it on because I can back all of it up. With all the money spent on college athletics, and yet we see all these pitfalls and holes mm-hmm. and where they're, you know, is it money not well spent? Is it people getting too much money for the job that they're doing? Is it is it a hybrid of both? I mean, yeah. you've got men's coaches making, you know, 10 times more than the president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I think those two things go hand in hand, the, the overpaying and then the spending money irresponsibly. One of my big issues with WKU and their athletic department was I remember the football team they would get they would get payments to go to hotel rooms for home games um, and you know you're talking about like an 80 90 person roster going to these hotel rooms and the reasoning was that um, if you know the coaches could keep all of the athletes in one place they would stay out of trouble the night before a big home game then why wouldn't they just live in the hotel yeah I, I mean yeah <laughs> Why would you have just a special dorm room for? That would technically be an extra benefit if they had dorm rooms for. How is then the hotel not an extra benefit? I, it's just NCAA logic. <laughs> I, I think it's because that one would be considered like a travel fee rather than getting something that other. And that's the thing too. Like, so the NCAA basically defines an extra benefit as something that athletes get that regular students don't get and I'm thinking back to all the times as a college athlete that I got you know early registration and you know healthcare and um, study rooms designed specifically for athletes in the athletic department and I'm like how is that not an extra benefit you know so those are those are questions that I don't have answers to as someone who studies NCAA policy yeah I mean it, it's the uh, the lack of clarity mm-hmm how does a how did you as an athlete and then you know how do athletes coming up how do you stay out of the way of not you know getting yourself because yeah I mean I'm sure it happens a lot you just don't see it a lot mm-hmm. how do you stay out of trouble mm-hmm. you know and it's because it seems like everywhere you turn what do you have to fly to Europe for a summer job and then hope they don't know that you booked a ticket to Europe but they're probably tracking you from your phone yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> <laughs> make a joke she's like no pretty on <laughs> well, point you know you say it like I, I mean college athletes are being tracked by apps that their athletic departments are creating specifically for athletes to make sure that they go to class you know so like talking about surveillance and control and these dystopian elements it's like that was why I wrote my book because they exist in the real world is that amount of control mm-hmm. when you get into the real world and mm-hmm. you don't have it how much does that mess with you? 
that's something else a lot of athletes struggle with is, you know, they're very much used to having a coach that is constantly telling them what to do, how to do it, when to be somewhere, what to wear, what to eat. And then they graduate and they have a job and there might be structure, but it's not the same as being on a college team where literally everything that you do is decided by somebody else. And so a lot of people, they, they'll struggle with that in a job setting because they'll get a task and they're like, oh, how do I do this? You know, like they have the task, they know what they need to do, but they, they're not having someone who's monitoring them constantly and telling them, you know, every step that they need to do. And so it, it can honestly be a big struggle for athletes who are used to being controlled. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, you know, it's hearing you talk, I, I get flashbacks, uh, you know, to different prison movies. You know, where the, the guys get out and they're like, "Sir, can I use the restroom?" Like, buddy, just go use the restroom. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know, or can I do this? Or, hey, I don't know what to do. I'm sitting here, and usually, like at eleven, mm-hmm. uh, when I was in prison, I, I played cards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at eleven now, I'm not. I'm not at work yet. I'm sitting here. Can I turn the TV? And then they're frozen in this moment. Yeah. It's. <clears throat> do they prepare you in any way? for breaking that cycle away from coaches, away from that structure, or do they prepare you to to somewhat keep that structure knowing it's gonna transition into work? I think college sports teaches you how to take orders very well. Um, And there are, I think, a lot of merits to being an athlete. Like you do learn discipline and dedication and being a good teammate and all of the cliches that you hear about. Like you legitimately do learn that as an athlete. Um, But something that I really struggled with after I graduated was like I had free time and I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, I don't have to run all the time. I'm not traveling every weekend. Um, I have to, you know, make my own decisions. Like I can wear whatever I want to the gym and that feels weird. You know, it was just like all these little things that I all of a sudden had a lot of control over where I didn't necessarily have that control as a college athlete. Another thing too that was super weird was um, in when I was in grad school, I would go and get like coffee or lunch with my advisor or whatever. And, and my advisors would offer to pay for it. And my immediate instinct was like, no, you can't do that. That's an NCAA violation. And then I had to realize like, no, like people can buy things for me now. Like it's okay. It's, you know, so it was like Christmas. You're like, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, the presents are there for me. Yeah. NCAA, no Santa. <laughs> they know they track it. They track it. <laughs> But yeah, it was just, it was this weird feeling of like, oh, I can do normal things now. And it's weird, but it's also kind of nice. And I just have to learn how to function like a normal adult after five years of constantly being told what to do. You know, it's it's just, it's a, it's a wild thing and it blows my mind um, because I just, I have a hard time wrapping my head around a, a cultural significant piece that is so aggressive mm-hmm. in shaping people but only for four years mm-hmm. and then they're like or for two years if you get injured or one year six months and they're like see ya yeah. just kick you to the curb and they're like and now it's up to you I don't know anybody else that does that I mean even when you leave prison you get classes you get yeah. you get moved through places you know Alcoholics Anonymous, you get moved through stages. Mm-hmm. This is, for lack of a better term, cult-like. Yes. It's just a really accepted yes. cult. Yeah. You are not the first person I've heard compare college sports to a cult. Well, I mean, I, 
from from the way they're managed to the despicable fans. Mm-hmm. You know, I was oh, I was yeah, uh, yeah. I was in this was years ago. I was in a bar here and I was celebrating my birthday mm-hmm. on the TV. The mighty, the powerful University of Montana Grizzlies. There we go. And they were playing North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And this guy was a North Dakota fan. He had the jersey on, the hat on. The he was North Dakota now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's screaming at mm-hmm. the TV. You fucking got moron. You couldn't catch the yeah. goddamn ball. And I just walked up and I go, hey, what? Hey, Montana's playing. You Montana fan? And I can see. He's like, I'm a North Dakota fan. He's like, I think Montana's going to win. I'm from Montana. This is very exciting for me. He's like, hey, listen, if Montana can figure out a way to cheat their way to go through. So now these kids are cheating. Oh, jeez. You know, yeah. they, there's not going to be a Christmas. There's no way. <laughs> North Dakota's too good to lose to such a shit team. And I'm like, first mm-hmm. of all, you're talking about 18-year-old boys. Right, right. Out there on the field. Um, I just, how did you, how do you deal with, you know, after writing your book and being an athlete, how do you deal with the assholes? And I want to be assholes and be very specific, parents and fans. Yeah, yeah. That, oh my God, that that is such a good question because I think that assholes are just an evergreen part of life. Like, they're always going to be there. But they're super aggressive when it comes to sports. It's uh, Yeah, I, and when you were talking about those aggressive kinds of fans, I immediately thought to Kate Foster, who was a kicker for Alabama who lost the Iron Bowl. I think it was in 2014, and he received death threats and, like, had to go off of social media because of that. And it's like, why are you, why are you threatening you know, a 20-year-old college student because he didn't kick a ball right one time. Like, hey, dickhead, <laughs> go kick the ball. Yeah. Now go kick the ball with a gun to your head. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and and I never had to deal with any of that level of harassment. Like, I've never dealt with death threats or anything like that. The most I've had to deal with is, like, people just being assholes about criticism and criticizing me without offering anything constructive, which, like, that's that's a part of being a writer, I think, is just dealing with people who don't like your work. Um, but yeah, I've never had to deal with death threats or any kind of harassment like that. Is there is there dirty play in running? Like my buddy <laughs> is a uh, he's he was the first African American uh, goalie for the U.S. Olympic water polo team. Mm-hmm. Janai Kerr, shout out Janai, can throw the ball floating in the water like sixty miles an hour, which I'm assuming wow. that's going to hurt if you get hit in the head. Yeah. But he's also like you don't see what happens under the water. Mm-hmm. You can't. Yeah. Or guys who are literally putting their fingers in their back door and then poking <laughs> someone in the eye to get them pink eye so they can't compete the next day. <laughs> the darkness that comes with water yeah. polo of just that just fucking with other people is hilarious yeah. and also troubling because they're like, oh, you can hook someone's leg and actually start to drown them. Yeah, right. Running. Mm-hmm. You got those tight packs. That camera's not in there. Yeah. Is there some dirty play? I've thrown elbows before. Yeah. How dare I mean, you, sometimes you, little... you have to. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I had to clear some bitches out. Listen, yeah. get a little I, close. Well, because, you know, especially like no one cares about the 5K and the 10K in college or, or in track. And that was what I ran. Like, those are my events. Like, there's a reason the 4x4 is the last event because it's really exciting and everyone will stick around to watch the 4x4. So they like, they throw the 5K right in front of it so that people have to watch the 5K to get to the 4x4 um, and so what they do with those distance events is they, they try to pack as many people on the track as they possibly can it's not as big of an issue with cross country because you're usually in like a big open field for the start and it yeah I mean that's where gradually. you got some weird cousin laying some fishing line on a yeah. trip somewhere <laughs> right. 
<laughs> never had that happen, but um, I have I have had people try to like block me in at the start of that's one that's one disadvantage of competing at a small town is like everybody knows you and so they try to screw you over in races. Like I actually did have a group of girls try to block me in high school at a regional meet. Block and I was you? Just, what, what do you mean block you? They like they tried to form a pack around me and like box me in so I couldn't get out, but. I, I just booked it out of the start gate and, like, didn't let them do that because <laughs> my coach caught wind of it. Flat tire someone. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry, Pam. Well, my, my coach, I was lucky, too, because my coach caught wind of it. He was like, Katie, you need to book it out of the start gate because these girls are trying to block you in. And I was like, okay, yes, coach. You're like, wait, I thought at the end of the 5Ks when I book it. I got to book it twice? <laughs> I know, now I have to do it twice. Shit. You got some pasta around the corner for me or something? <laughs> You're book it. You got figure out your book it, okay? One, not two. But, but and, and it's so hard on the track, too, because there are only eight lanes, you know, so that's, like, I've run 5Ks at conference meets where it's, like, 50 women on the track for a 5K, and it's, like, you have to kind of assert yourself and just, like, toss an elbow every once in a while, because, <laughs> like, people will, tr they'll try to edge you out, and they'll try to trip you, and by claiming that space, it's actually safer than getting a bunch of legs involved and, and potentially causing a pileup. Yeah, because you do see the pileups happen. Yeah. I don't and those pilots, look, but <laughs> no, the pileups look gnarly. They're awful, yeah. You see some people really getting hurt, and that course, whether it's cross country or it's a track, yeah. is not forgiving on flesh when you fall. And, and we're wearing spikes, too. That's what a lot of people forget about track and cross country. Is, when you're doing is, the 5K, you're wearing spikes? Oh, yeah, yep. I'm thinking you're in like my little pretty chucks like this. You know, no traction, just skipping <laughs> well, some, along. Some or you have great shoes. Oh, By the way, you. folks, <laughs> this is not a Nike podcast. <laughs> You guys are missing out on some sick kicks right now, okay? Some sick kicks. I'm a sneaker gal. I love sneakers. Um, We're going to get into that next, then. Cool, cool. Um, but, yeah, so, like sometimes you'll wear racing flats for um, for track meets. But, like, I mean, I would wear spikes in the 5K. So it really kind of depends on the, on the totally race, on the athlete. It's a totally different flat tire with spikes. It, yes, yes. <laughs> Those, I, I've seen people bleed after. Well, because your legs, you're a, you are a real runner. Like, I'm not a real one. I've seen people have watched me run who know how to run. And they're like, it's not running. <laughs> not that you're not moving fast, but it's like the legs. That, you know, there's a, there's there's actually a real form to running. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whether it's you know, and you see it, it's like was it leaning forward or straight up, and where's your head, and where are your mm -hmm. shoulders? Like there's all this physical, but where are your hips mm -hmm. in in you know in conjunction to the rest of your body, your spine alignment. Yeah, yeah. How much? How much of that was taught to you versus how much of that was innate in your in your stride and who you are? I learned nothing about form as a college runner. Like the only thing that we would really do was we would do a lot of core work to make sure we weren't slouching and that, you know, our shoulders were back and all kinds of because people forget how important core is to really any sport that you play. Um, because, you know, if you don't have a strong core, your body is going to compensate, usually by, like, slouching shoulders or overworking your hips or something like that. And so with running, it's really important to prevent, like, hip injuries mm -hmm. um, and, and hamstring injuries and other overcompensation kind of problems. Um, but, like, yeah, we didn't we – didn't, I didn't learn much about form. Like, we would, we would do some foot drills where we would, like, walk on the balls of our feet or the outsides of our feet to strengthen up our feet, but – um, the only the only time I really ever had my gait analyzed was when I went to a running shop in town and I ran on a treadmill that showed the pressure points on my foot. But um, it was kind of just natural, like this is how I run. And I'm honestly, so I'm an overpronator. I don't do you know what that? Nope. It's like when your foot hits 
the ground and it, it tends to rotate like your ankle will rotate inward when you oh oh yeah. oh I have so bad I've been, ankles so I'm, I'm so an over-pronator and I ha- so I have to wear like insoles and really um just Poor really supportive ankles. shoes yeah and that's I, mean, I have like bumps on the outside like the regular one oh, but I have a yeah. big bump here from all the times yeah. just, and <laughs> it's like they're just they're awkward and they're big there's the big bump right there from all the uh breaks Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I hear ankle stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bless. yes. Well, and it's it's just, it's not necessarily that it's right or wrong. It's just natural for people. And there are some mm-hmm. things you can do for that, but usually you just need good shoes. Or at least that was what I was always told, is like, you just need good shoes, so. Well, after Shaq got his first major injury, he had mm-hmm. to learn how to rewalk. Yeah, yeah. Zion, same thing. Mm-hmm. Big size. Obviously, you're, you're a smaller, petite woman. You're not dealing with mm-hmm. the big size that those gentlemen have. But the learning how to properly walk, even yeah. if just to save your back and your hips, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew that I wasn't running right. My hip flexors were just, you know, yes. they get jacked. I had and then your hip flexors. IT bands get jacked. And well, I'll have to yes. show you a video. I had this weird thing from when I was running a lot that it's never stopped. Constant muscle spasms in my calves. It looks hmm. like I have worms that live in my muscles. Hmm. They flow and they twitch and they move. And I'm like, oh, do you have a banana? I'm like, I went a <laughs> week of eating nine bananas a day. It's not potassium. <laughs> right? They're like, are you hydrated? I'm like, I did that too. I've tried it all. It doesn't stop. They, yeah, they're yeah. like, is it restless leg? I'm like, I don't even know if that exists. But I'm not taking the drugs because the side effects. The, the, yeah, the, the yeah. drug side effects are always weird, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always like, I want to get better. Like, and it's weird, too, because I, I, I just said, I do peptides. I do, like, alpha brain and other weird shit that, you know, they're like, we've tested it. Kind of. You know, but it's not illegal, and you're not uh-huh. you're not getting it from India. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, we also make it over here for $10, or we mm-hmm. sell it to the U.S. for 1000 Like, Is it? Or is it just, like, <laughs> caffeine and fentanyl? Yeah, you just don't yeah. know, so you don't buy Folks, don't buy that shit. You don't know. <laughs> this is made in the USA. The government has not said it's good for you or bad for you. They've just said, hey, use it at your own risk. So when all of that being done, mm-hmm. then I still look at other stuff and go, yeah, I'm not trying that. Because yeah. the restless leg syndrome are like, I'm nervous around people. Mm-hmm. You'll take this drug. You'll have dry mouth. You'll have constant bad breath. You'll have sweaty palms. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll shit purple Twinkies. But you're going to want to talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. But then no one's going to want to talk to you. Yeah. Because yeah. you've got stinky breath and you're sweaty and you're gross. Yeah. you got to take another drug for that because no one wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. you got to take the sweaty palm drug and then you're back to this. And it's this whole yeah. vicious fucking crazy circle. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird world. Well, and honestly, like for athletes, I mean, unless... I can't imagine the cocktails of vitamins and crap you have to just... Yeah, oh, it, it was always oh. like... Ice and Tylenol was always the answer from our train. It's like we. Our ice and Tylenol destroys your liver and your gut biome. Oh, it was yeah, it was awful. It was and and that's another thing too. Like like a lot of people think that oh, college athletes get great health care and and I was talking about this earlier too about how it's like no, they're just kind of stringing us along to make sure that we can compete. Like it's not necessarily like high quality health care. We just get like you know, sports medicine that keeps us in the I was going to say, you get the best numbing agents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, And honestly, like, a lot of it is. It's like, oh, you know, you have, uh, you know, a pain in your knee. Let's put some stim on it and, and you know, get 
the muscle fibers going and try to promote healing, but we're really just like making it feel better. Same with ice. And I mean, there are benefits to that in the long term, but a lot of it is just like to alleviate the pain so that you can continue on to the next workout and the next race. Yeah. And I don't do the ice. I, I love Wim Hof. God bless you, sir. Good <laughs> for you. We used to do, we had like a cold tank in our training room and it was like a hot tub, but a reverse hot tub where it was just cold water all of the time. Um, and we would we do that in the winter too when it was snowing outside and it was I, I I miss them and I don't miss them because they would make you feel better afterwards but at what cost you know yeah and listen I, I'll hook you up my friend Kat she uh, her and her husband they've got an ice bath they have outside they got a newborn mm-hmm. I just get videos all the time we're in the ice bath again <laughs> I got a little junior with dad I'm in the ice bath I'm like first of all no. The pool was like 70 degrees the other day. It was 68. My mm. daughter's swimming. She's like, no, get in. I'm like, Dad's nope. old, honey. I don't think you understand this. <laughs> <laughs> My joints don't respond to colds the way yeah. young people joints do, where you can still move. Right, right. That's another. So college sports ruined swimming for me because every time I got injured, my coaches would just be like, "Okay, swim in the pool for two hours. Like, just do intervals until you can't anymore." Because, <laughs> because they. I mean, and. It made sense why, why they had me do that because, like, your body doesn't really know swimming cardio from running cardio. So even, you know, when you're not running, you can still... It doesn't? That. that was what they told me. Um, and I, I, mean, did, I did notice, you know, when I did cross-train when I was injured versus when I didn't, that it was easier to get back into running. Okay. Um, but it was... It's, I don't recommend it. It's not fun. <laughs> I don't recommend swimming because it's, it's the most demoralizing thing in the world because you, you will be in decent shape. Yeah, I'm yeah. in decent shape. I will go to a pool. I will see someone, 300 pounds, swim back and forth mm-hmm. at a pace. They got the big goggle on. They got the yeah. snorkel where they just breathe and their head's underwater. They're not turning side to side. They get the earplugs and they got the whole setup. Mm-hmm. And I applaud them for working out. Yeah, I really do. I'm more frustrated than the fact that they can kick my ass in swimming. Yeah. That they're just <laughs> swimming back and forth for an hour. It's hard, yeah. And I go up and down. I'm like, why well, am winded? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. And I mean, I think running is kind of the same way where you just have to do a lot of it for a long time to be good at it. Um, but yeah, running was so much more fun for me because you actually get scenery, you know, like you can mm-hmm. you can talk to people and like there there's stuff to do while you run. Whereas like when you swim, you're just looking at that line at the bottom of the pool. Yeah. And I was like, no. Nope. And I, I know some very good swimmers and I respect them so much. I just hate swimming. <laughs> oh, I've had people, friends who are like, we're going to. Barton Springs and come with us or it's just swim I'm like we are not today mm-hmm. or ever yeah <laughs> find me in the metaverse bring me to Barton Springs in the metaverse we're good all right hard left turn in the in the world of able and Spartan conversations let's get let's get out of the college sports let's get into some shoes you're a shoe gal let's talk yes. about one more thing I know nothing about <laughs> I like to pretend that I know things when I don't I wear chucks mm-hmm. pretty much that's what I wear I wear Jack Purcell chucks Maybe some Adidas, mm-hmm. old school shells, mm-hmm. you know, with the black stripes. That's about the world I live in. You're mm-hmm. a sneakerhead. One, to you, what makes a good sneaker? Mm-hmm. Style, function, performance, where does that sit? And then two, in this crazy new world we live in, laces. Because you've Ooh. got some funky, fun laces, but we yes. also have the people that do the things where they just kind of cross. They're like, just yeah. slip your shoes up. The hickeys, I think is what they're called. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and you, could, you, you could climb Everest with the hickeys. And I'm like, first of all, that's a lot. <laughs> all right? I've, I've used hickeys. I've walked too fast, and my shoes popped off. Mm-hmm, and they're like, mm-hmm. you got the wrong. I didn't get the wrong size of anything. Mm-hmm. It does, 
They're cute. They're pretty. My daughter loves them because mm-hmm. she doesn't know how to tie shoes very well. She's yeah. eight. <laughs> so I love them That's for handy, that. Yeah. It's handy. We're like, dad doesn't have to bend down with his shit knees. And she goes, I can hear him grinding. <laughs> Thanks, kiddo. Can you also grab me some numbing cream? Or <laughs> just, you should you, hop in the cold tank. Yeah. It's just, just, then it doesn't grind. It's just frozen one piece. Yeah. It's just locked in. <laughs> So what makes a good shoe to you versus a fashionable shoe? Mm-hmm. What, what is it? Yeah, so in turn, and I think this is... you've got some sick kicks right now. Explain your kicks. Because they you. got a thick sole. They're awesome. Yeah, Colorful. these are... So I actually, I have not been buying new sneakers lately. I've been trying to save money, which is always so hard. Because, like, these are Nike Air Force Ones. They're my favorite because they have a really thick sole, you can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they kind of remind me of running shoes in that way because they're just very, very supportive. So that's always something that I look for in shoes because I do like Converse and Keds and stuff like that, but I can't walk in them for very long because my feet are weird. And so... I mean, I'm going to take offense if you compare my <laughs> shoes to Keds. All right? That shit sold at Payless. Right? This, is, this, is all, this is an online purchase. It was $90. I like them. Right? I like them. I just... I couldn't... These, are, these by the way, are five years old. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, and that's another factor for me with shoes is I'm, I'm willing to buy like Nike or Adidas or whatever and pay a little more because I mean I and I've only had these for a couple years but I've had Nike running shorts that I've literally had since high school and they're still in great shape you know so when I'm buying shoes or clothes or whatever I'm always thinking okay what is what is the cost per wear you know like if I oh, wear this yes. if this the costs $100 and I wear it 10 times a year you know and I can do the math that way and, and kind of figure out like okay this is a good investment so I, I'm, I'm thrifty I do look for price I look more for comfort than anything else too but style is important I like bright colors I like to, you can see I switched out the laces yeah my mom is she's a cookier she does like really fancy cookies I'll show you some pictures after um, the podcast but those are little sprinkle shoelaces that she found online I like um, it and they came with like these neon ones that I was like they're nice but they blend in too much so I like something that grabs the eye too Fact or fiction? Because I've heard this from people, and I don't know if it's true or not, which also put me on the converses. Mm-hmm. The, the new era of shoes, of where the heel is higher than the front, uh-huh. fucks with your gait or can hurt your back a little bit, especially mm-hmm. when working out a room. Yeah. True false? It really depends on the on the, on the person's gait? Yeah. Cause like, I, no, I let's try... broad brush this. Come on, we're going to the... <laughs> Yes, Jason. No, I gotta complicate everything because <laughs> um, I I've tried. They're I think they're called zero drop shoes. Yes. The one, yeah, and they messed up my feet. Like they made my feet hurt so badly. Um, whereas like the ones with the higher drop work better for me for whatever reason. Okay. I just have to wear an orthotic. Um, so it, it really depends. And there are people who swear by like barefoot running and all kinds of. Oh stuff. yeah, I've, like, I've tried those yeah. and I almost broke my toe right, because yeah. I tripped. And then I got my little finger, and they're yeah. they're they're not together like a like a like a like a mitten yeah. hanging out. They're all individual, and then one little thing hits a rock, and that yeah. toe's broken. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think people realize that part. Mm-hmm. I tried to play basketball in them. Mm-hmm. I went up and down Ooh. the court once, and I was like, "You guys, I I can't. I I'd rather run barefoot and slide with sweaty feet. Yeah, than run in these shoes." Where my little toes show, yeah, I'm gonna destroy all my toes. Yeah, and they're yeah. already ugly and broken as it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, my one foot got run over. My right foot got run over when I was a kid. Oh wow! And it broke all the nails, and then uh-huh. the nails never grew back right. I have a weird nail too. Yeah, I so I've got one. Running. My my big toe. There's a part where the nail just doesn't grow. Yeah. Because it broke off, 
And then I've got other ones where it's uneven because uh -huh. the way it broke them and then, uh -huh. you know, whatever else happens with feet and nails and shit. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. But it's just one foot's jacked and the toes are jacked too. They don't yeah. look right. They're turning different ways and bent up and curled and it's just like, yeah. you can get a surgery. <laughs> no, I can't get a surgery because I don't, I'm not going to be the person. Why did you get the surgery? Was there something wrong? Vanity. One of those toes that were real nice. One of the nails perfect. I'm going to be a foot model one day. I'm going to be that old guy foot model. They're in high demand. I've heard They're in high demand, right? <laughs> Tevas are making a comeback. They're going to come without, you know, before it was obviously 16 above, Tevas with white tube socks was a freight train of fashion. Mm -hmm. now they're Which come one back. were the Tevas again? They had the straps. Yes, yes. Okay. They're I like the those. six or seven yep. straps, which would give you like the really cool tan lines. Yes, I remember those. Uh huh. Burn the top of your feet. And have I you ever like burnt the top of your feet? I have, yes, yes. That's the worst sunburn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Folks. Well, uh, the scalp sunburn. Oh, the, yeah. I used that to be bald really and I burned it so bad it blistered. <laughs> oh, no. And the worst part is, is then you've got to go out in public like the next day. Yeah. <laughs> Did you mind popping my blister? <laughs> you know, you're like, you got a blister in your can you pop it? That's like the best relief ever, though. Oh, it is. But then, it, you know, it flakes, and it's, and you got yeah, to shave yeah. it again, mm -hmm. and then you're just taking off flesh, and you're Ugh. like, oh, I'm growing my hair back out. But it was, I would always make people mad, because I have a full head of hair. Uh-huh. And they'd be like, why are you bald? And I would just look at my bald friends and go, because you can't do this. I just want to let you know how much better I am than you <laughs> Yes, you can lift more, but I can do and I can do burr. You can only do one, okay? Or you can do the comb over and it sucks. <laughs> I'm the worst friend because I'm competitive on only things I can win. Other, That's the only way to be competitive. Though. Exactly, right? Like, are you good at this? Am I better than you? Yes, I'm good at it. I, but I also kind of like that world, right? And, and when you... When you get older and you've got friends and you used to be competitive, uh-huh. That's fun. Mm -hmm. Like I would play basketball. There's this young man that I brought up shoes as well because he worked at Nice Kicks for a minute and he's an excellent writer and total sneakerhead and understands the sneaker fashion world as well as the professional world mm -hmm. as far as performance goes for basketball and everything else. And we would play and he's a better athlete than me. Mm -hmm. Hands down. Ian Stonebrook is a better athlete. He can dribble better. He can pass better. He mm -hmm. can shoot better. But game on the line, we're down by one, mm -hmm. two-point shot. You put me in the post on a turnaround. That kid can't stop it to save his life. Mm -hmm. So I would always turn around, hit it, and just go, throw it again. <laughs> and I would start to walk away. <laughs> you would just be like, like, I'm just better. Just better. Now, I'm better at one minute thing in basketball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To the point where... He would start bumping me at half court. Mm -hmm. Like if the game's on the line, mm -hmm. he's meeting me at half court. He's like, yeah, I don't think you're going to get to the free throw line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the boxing in, the ladies do for you, right? They just right, box yeah. it in. <laughs> I'd look at him and go, you know I'm not the best player on the team. There's other people that get the ball now. So now we're really going to win. All right, The fact that you're focused on me is hilarious. Yeah. 48-year-old man. Thank you. God bless you. My ego is huge. Yeah. <laughs> I used to think I had a big ego, and I, I want to ask you about this. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the movies, and we haven't touched the movie hardly, I apologize, oh, I but this is so much fun talking with you, <laughs> I don't care, people are going to get mad, they're like, you missed my favorite part of the movie, I'm we like, didn't talk I, about the R-O-U-S's. I know, they're like, you missed my favorite part of the movie, I'm like, I don't know who you are, so how would I know the favorite part of your movie? <laughs> Jesus, man, take it easy on me, just chat here. I think, for the record, I think my favorite part of this movie is yes, the, the marriage part. <laughs> the marriage. Mine is always, and it's, you know, I'm using a lot, mine is in Megamontoya. Yes. <laughs> I need to start using that in the car more. <laughs> I have a it, mug that it has like the hello, my name is sticker no. on it. <laughs> See, that's a winning mug. Right I got there. it as a dirty, or like a white elephant gift, and I fought so hard for it. I wanted that mug so badly. Yeah, I, I'm going to keep this. Yeah. Y'all do you. <laughs> you do you, boo, but this, <laughs> you can say we traded. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> You're keeping the stink bubble gum, okay? <laughs> my, uh, my daughter has a massive ego. <laughs> I mean, no, like, I think more girls should have massive ego. I love it. Yeah. She told me the other day, we're in the, we're, she's hanging out with her little friend, but she's kind of upset. I take her off to the side and I go, hey, kid, come here. What are you doing, man? We're with your friend. Why are you upset? <laughs> Music's playing. You got arts and crafts going. Come on, man. I'm baking you guys some cookies. Like, what What could possibly have you frustrated? She looks at me. She goes, Dad, you know that song was on. I go, yeah. I love the song. She goes, Dad, I'm a solo act. Now, she's eight. <laughs> she's eight years old. She kept trying to sing the song with me like we're a duet. <laughs> I'm not a duet person, Dad. I'm a solo act. Oh, that's great energy, though. <laughs> <laughs> just like, she's and there's tears. So there's tears in her eyes, like she's so upset that this girl wanted to sing a song with her, and she's a solo act. And I'm biting my lip, trying not to laugh because I can't laugh at her confidence. I'm not going to destroy yeah. that. But holy, she's just like, I'm a solo. <laughs> she doesn't get it. You gotta tell her to stop singing when I'm singing. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is also the same girl we're listening to Maroon 5 in the car, and she goes, I really like that guy. What's his name? I go, Adam Levine. She goes, Yeah, he's nice. Little pitchy. <laughs> Little pitchy. <laughs> he's real good. <laughs> Looks at her Taekwondo instructor. She's barely a green belt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm really excited for class today. Obviously, if we do the arm thing, I'm going to take it easy on you because I could break your arm. <laughs> That's uh, great. <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, what do you do here? Mm. You know, and people are like, hey, you got to calm it down. I'm like, no, I don't think I do. <laughs> I want her going into the world, right. kicking doors open. 100%. Yeah. Kick it open. Yeah. I know too many asshole guys that, that kick the door open, know what the shit they're doing. Yes. And they, and yes. they just blanket it right through. Mm-hmm. I need more women to do that. Just be like, no, yeah. I'm here. Well, I don't know if you... Screw you. I'm smart. Like, yes. that's the one thing I don't understand. I really don't. And we're, we're laughing at fun, but I, I, a serious point here is I don't get the fact that I can apply for a job I have no credentials for, but mm -hmm. I have this really crazy, unique background. Yeah. And be like, well, he can figure it out. Mm -hmm. But you, you have a career path, young lady. You're going to do X, Y, or Z. You're breaking out of that. And you try to. You, did you go back to school? Can you take a, mm -hmm. can you take a LinkedIn skills test for me real quick mm -hmm. to make sure that you're appropriate for the job? Yeah. I, I read somewhere 
and it was probably a LinkedIn post or something, but it was like, <laughs> men are judged on potential, whereas women are judged on performance. And yeah. I think that's such, and I, I think that's such a, a problematic dynamic because, especially when you're talking about, you know, young women who are just getting into the workforce um, and who need to just like gain experience and have a ton of potential, but you know, who aren't looked at as someone who's qualified when you know, nobody in an entry-level position is supposed to be qualified. Yeah. Um, and it's something I see so much, too, with, like, with women's sports, too, how, like, men's sports have had so much time to gain fan bases and, like, create rivalries and with, with you know, col- uh, with college, you know, find a bunch of boosters to support them, and then people are looking at women's sports, and they're just like, oh, well, they just haven't performed the same. And it's like, yeah, no shit, because Title IX was just passed 50 years ago. Yeah. I loved it, and, it, and I wish it would happen more. There was a time, God, this might have been 20 years ago, and then maybe the WNBA was just getting launched, yeah. and one of the women's teams went to Rutgers, mm-hmm. and they wrecked house. Oh, yeah, yeah. They fucked those dudes up because yeah. they were a team of oh, fundamentals. Yeah. But they just coming off screen, setting things up. Yeah, maybe the guys got a fast break and a dunk, mm-hmm. but they won every game. Mm-hmm. They murked those cats. Yeah, I yeah. wish the WNBA would do more of that. Yeah, I wish that in the off season they would pay those ladies. They wouldn't have to go over to Europe. Mm-hmm. They'd pay yeah. those ladies to go to the best of the best courts mm-hmm. all over the U.S. and run shop mm-hmm. to get some res- to to get the respect they deserve. Not to get some respect, but the respect they deserve. Yeah, go down to Newport. Play, play at 19th Street, mm-hmm. where Rooksy played, where Sean Rooks played, yeah, mm-hmm. rest in peace. I got to play with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would smoke those cats mm-hmm. all day long. And I wish the WMB would embrace that kind of experiential marketing mm-hmm. as well as, 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 as other female athletic programs would mm-hmm. to show, like, go to the men's softball league, yeah. fast pitch. Mm-hmm. Go to the men's softball fast pitch. And murk some dudes mm-hmm. who are talking shit about you. Murk that forty-five-year-old dad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, am I being too aggressive? I mean, it's something. <laughs> I, I. You're wish, kind of agreeing, and you're I, also like. <laughs> I do, well, because I agree and I disagree, and okay. it's like this weird tension that I have because I don't think that female athletes should have to dominate men for respect. But I also understand that like that's the society. But that it's we marketing live in. for me, right? Yeah, and so I'm like, I'm like that could help grow the league you know it's kind of like like I write for a women's sports betting site I'm not crazy about sports gambling but I'm like it's bringing visibility to women's sports so you can bet on women's sports yeah oh yeah bethher.com yeah Ooh, shout out (laughs) bethher.com yeah we uh we cover um like the NWSL we cover um the WNBA, women's MMA, we did some women's March Madness too. So yeah, we got all the we, we do like coverage and so we'll talk about like the lines and the odds and, and just like previews and stuff and then you can go to the sports books yourself yourself based on the um the article links. So. based on your insights and, yeah, and where you yeah. think things are. Mm-hmm. Uh if you don't mind me asking what you're over under. Where 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 do you sit on your insight versus games playing out? You mean are, do you pick a lot of winners? I mean, are oh, you like oh. your insights, right? So it's you know. Yeah, so we do like we'll do like over under parlays, like mm-hmm. whatever whatever the sports books said. Like we're just reporting what the sports books are okay. saying. Yeah, yeah, we're not a sports book in and of ourselves. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there um, looking uh, looking ahead to uh, 
let's let's go with women's soccer, right? Mm-hmm. The men just made the World Cup for the first time in I don't know how many years, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. The women make the World Cup damn near every time, yeah. and yeah. have for the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. Let's let's wrap up with this question. I got a couple more things I want to tell you, but let's wrap up with this. The inequity in that, mm-hmm. even in soccer, where women just kick the men's ass all mm-hmm. day long. Mm-hmm. How frustrating is that to, to see where now it's just expected that the women make the World Cup? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just expected, but yet they're not paid like it's expected. Like, the fact that LeBron James is paid what he's paid and you're expected to go to the to, to at least the playoffs, mm-hmm. if not the finals with LeBron James and the Lakers and they don't even make the playoffs, mm-hmm. if that happened with women, I would assume someone would be like, maybe she's so much get a pay cut. Mm-hmm. No one's telling LeBron she get a pay cut. Yeah. No one's telling Anthony Davis who can't seem how to figure out how to get the right health coach to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's a big man. There's a lot of different moving parts for that size. Mm-hmm. But still, you would think with all the technology out there, Stay healthier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's not asking for a pay cut. I can guarantee if the women went, you know, for a decade of not making the World Cup, he'd be like, why are we paying them anything? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Why is that that way when they've proven their track record so much and the men haven't proven shit and they're just like, if we give them some more money, they're going to be awesome. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is sexism. Like, I mean, that's the short, we're, we're, we like short, simple answers. So yeah. that would be the short and simple answer. Um, I think the long answer is that athletic spaces have been so traditionally viewed as male-centric. Um, and in a lot of ways, they still, are, they still are. Like, when you look at people who are in positions of power in the sports industry, it's pretty much 80% men. You know, that's almost all male. And so I think it's almost viewed as this default of, the men were here first, this is their turf, and so they deserve to be here by obligation and by privilege. Whereas with women, like we've had to fight, like we fought so hard for Title IX just to be allowed access into these spaces. And so when people see women in athletic spaces, it's like, oh, this is unnatural, or like they're out of their element. But the thing is like, women's sports are a lucrative business. In 2020, the only major uh, sports leagues to experience growth were women's leagues. And if if you look at March Madness on the women's side from 2020 to 2021, with better branding and access to the March Madness trademark for the first time, viewership was up by like 20% for the final four. Hold on, first time? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 so until what about UConn? I mean, I've been cheering for UConn and Stanford. No, that that's so the NCAA up until this past March Madness tournament only used the March Madness trademark for the men. So if you watch any any you know March games on the women's side prior to this tournament, you'll notice it said you know women's Final Four or women's Elite Eight or women's college basketball. They never used the March Madness trademark because the NCAA reserved it for men. Huh. That seems like it breaks a rule. It doesn't but I don't know the how. The NCAA isn't subject to Title IX. Hmm. I don't know how rules work. I got some broken on rules. Well, I mean, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, and we would laugh, and I'd bring up more stories of my daughter, <laughs> and we would laugh even more. And I, I would start FaceTiming athlete friends of mine to, to mm-hmm. ask you better questions than I could ever ask. <laughs> no, you were, these are great questions. I, you know, we should. Let's. I want to see if we're going to do one thing here, folks. I'm going to I'm going to say something, and while I'm doing this, I'm also going to dial in someone and just see if he answers because if he does this will be oh, hilarious cool. yeah. 
let's do um, it. But while I'm doing that, I also want I want to say to you, uh, you know, in this crazy world that we live in, and I usually end with this, but I'm just going to do this while we try to make this phone call real quick because this would just be hilarious if he answers. <laughs> but um, you know, you go buy bread; it goes bad. You go buy more bread. Mm. Get those fucking pesky avocados and they're never right yeah. and then you're like that's time for avocado toast and they're, they're, they're just they're like, we're gonna have butter honey the avocado's bad you know just instantly but you gotta go buy more mm-hmm. right the mm-hmm. point is you can just keep going out and getting it if you mess up and, and time is the one thing uh, you, you just don't get back yeah and for me to be able to send an email and to, to have you respond and then want to spend two hours with me is, is, is always humbling and mind-blowing to me because uh it's 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 two hours you don't get back, mm. and to spend it with a stranger, to spend it with me and my random weird questions, is also uh, just um, hilarious to me. Yeah, well, thank you. And I it's honoring. It really is. Mm. It really is. So thank you. Uh, while I say that, I will also say, uh, well, I'm well. We're seeing if this gentleman's going to answer, and I'll tell you who it is afterwards because he would be great. If it, Come on. <laughs> um, tell people where they can get your book, where they can find you again. Mm-hmm. Close it out with us. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is Lever Fever, and my book purchase link is in both of my bios there. You can also find it on Amazon. It's called Surviving the Second Tier. Um, and if you like it, or if you don't like it, a review would be great. Nice. Well, Brian Callen did not answer. Ah. Uh, I know. We love. I love Brian. He's a. He's become a friend. And but to have an athlete, to have him talk to an athlete. Yeah. If yeah. you've ever heard him talk to athletes, it's hilarious because <laughs> he is the dragon. Does he have, like, a podcast or anything? He does. Oh, hook The you fighter up. and the kid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll hook you up. I'll introduce you to Brian for sure. For sure, because The Fighter and the Kid, that's actually it's a great show. Uh, Shab will be, he's out here next this coming weekend for uh, for Moon Tower. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, and then uh, Sam Tripoli, uh, one of his other guys he's a podcast with, is uh, down here. So next weekend or the following weekend mm-hmm. for uh, for something as well. So cool. always, uh, and I will introduce you to anyone in my Rolodex for whatever, uh, you know, because I, I do appreciate the time. And yeah, more importantly, you got a great story to tell, and you have a great book, and you have great insight. And on the things we agree and disagree with, uh, it's it's inconsequential the fact that we, we had a, a great conversation, mm-hmm. and, and I greatly appreciate it. So with that said, folks, here it is, your time to shine, your favorite part of the podcast, where, yes, my daughter sings about the first time she took a poop by herself... <laughs> Here it is, the Harper Jepsen original. I took a poop. MK, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough. I hope we have you on again. And um, you have a wonderful week ahead of you, please. And here she is, singing the poop song.